Welcome to the Data Diaries podcast and this special series on leading through the COVID-19 crisis for visitor attractions executives with your host, Angie Judge, Chief Executive of Dexhibit, Big Data Analytics for Visitor Attractions. Today I'm here with the inspirational Christy Coleman, Executive Director at Jamestown Yorktown Foundation, two living history museums that tell the story of America's beginnings. Christy, thank you so much for being with us here today. What's life like for you in Virginia at the moment? Well, it's pretty hectic. Um, There is uh, a lot of planning going on. There's a lot of uh, teleworking going on and special projects that our team are doing. And, you know, but we are not um, in the traditional sense serving people who are coming through the door and paying for our services. So, It is like most museums right now around the world, you know, we're dealing with some significant revenue loss and trying to figure out what that impact means. Yeah, I know this week in particular has been such a tough one for many in the industry. There's a lot of people out there have been furloughed and it is, it is so hard on everyone. Um, For the people without work to come to, for their teammates who are left behind, and those who have to deliver the bad news as well. What, what's your pulse on the feeling out there? Well, people are just uncertain. Um, some people are angry. Some people are scared that what they're seeing among friends and colleagues in the field is going to eventually hit them, and they just don't mm. know when or how. Um, so there is a lot of chatter um, going on. There is a lot of conversations that are taking place um, at all levels of the organizations, Um, I know, I mean, I've been on, gosh, in the last three to four weeks, I've been on at least five or six different um, museum-related phone calls or, you know, conference calls or Zooms or uh, uh, webinars of one sort or another. And um, again, the thing is the same. People just aren't quite sure how to deal with any of this because it is so unprecedented and so quick on so many levels. And so there is, again, just a a lot of uncertainty about how to pivot in the midst of this. It's it's a heavy topic, topic, but you've done an amazing job of shining light on the ugly truth, which is that just like any organization out there, cultural institutions need money to survive. And when they're closed, there's no ticket sales, there's no shop, there's no cafe, there's no member revenue, there's potentially issues with donors, layoffs Mm -hmm. is such a hard Mm -hmm. reality, but payroll and other expenses like property, it's, it's got to come from somewhere, right? It's got to come from somewhere. And, and, you know, that's, I've tried to, to, um, so this all started, you know, I sent out a, maybe two or three days ago, I I just put up a tweet and the tweet really wasn't meant for um, museum people per se. I I was doing it for my non-museum friends who were like, why are all these museums closing? And why are they talking about not opening their doors and what's going on? Um, Why are they laying off people? And so I, sent out this four thread tweet um, and I was, I'm still overwhelmed by the response to it and how, how far and wide it's gone. Um, and I was also really, um, just really touched by people saying, you know, thanks for just making it simple and, and clear for us to explain to people, sometimes their own staffs 
not fully understanding it. And mm -hmm. so, you know, it, it, what I was just more than anything else was trying to do is just say, look, here's the situation. These are the facts. You know, this is what we're dealing with. We have been through difficult times before, but there's no question. I can't, I cannot say to somebody, look, I mean, we've been through it before. We will rise again. I mean, I, I've tried <laughs> to a certain degree, but I also know the reality. I also know that the reality here is we haven't seen anything quite like this that has hit so fast um, that people has people worrying about their physical well-being of, of themselves and their families, as well as mm -hmm. the financial well-being at the same time. This is different. Um, I was talking to a colleague uh, who said, you know, well, I'm old enough to remember when, you know, we'd have outbreaks of polio and measles and chicken pox like crazy and people would get sick and people would die and it was just considered a regular part of life. And she said, I, you know, but even with that, um, we didn't always have the, the financial impacts the way we do now. Um, and, and she's right about that, you know, I mean, she's, she's been in this business a, a far longer than I, but, um, but again, you know, this is a, this is a different animal. You can certainly pick up some lessons of how you can approach these decisions. Um, but to say we know exactly what's going to, how this is going to land, I think is foolhardy what we need to be figuring out is, okay, we, we recognize how the failures of this particular system are impacting, our, uh, impacting us. So what do we do on the other side? How do we communicate on the other side of this and through this to the funding communities, to our governments, to our uh, uh, staff that this model uh, and this is definitely the issue for those of us in the U.S. It varies greatly in different parts of the world. But, you know, in the 80s, museums saw, saw their funding model substantially change because of an economic philosophy um, that placed us in a nice-to-have category versus being critical to the preservation of cultural life. And, and, and then, so museums saw on average where they could, the, the, the funding model would have had up to a third of their funding coming from government sources, a third coming from philanthropy and endowments and a third coming off the gate, having to shift where there are many who don't have a single stitch of government funding, state, local, or otherwise. They have had to make up the difference by being more entrepreneurial and, and relying more so on earned revenue. And as a result of having to rely more on earned revenue, it has made them even more vulnerable. And so that is the reality that we're facing in the US where the American Association of Museums is predicting that based on their recent work with, you know, what our endowment sizes, what our cash reserves, et cetera, that this could shut down up to a third of our museums and they may not reopen. And that number. is extraordinary. Yeah, it's a huge number. I mean, there's um, the Institute of Museum and Library Services estimates that there are 35,000 museums in the United States. So to lose 10,000 or more is just unimaginable in terms of the loss uh, in community service and, um, and public asset. That public trust is just, you know, who, who picks the, up that slack? 
Mm-hmm. And so, um, so you're talking about teacher training and, and you're talking about student preparedness and you're talking about, again, for many of these smaller communities, in particular rural communities, um, even in urban centers, museums are a huge part of civic life. And unfortunately, because we are nonprofits or not-for-profits, um, the, the, we've got to get people to value us in a different way. Um, and, and, you know, even with that, um, that becomes even more difficult because of the way capitalism has evolved in the last 20 or 30 years, maybe a little bit longer, but certainly since the 80s, where, you know, we're now sitting, looking at a nation where 40% of the, uh, 40% of Americans um, have an average income of $18,000 a year. That doesn't support a middle class. That doesn't support the cultural world. Um, as we've seen the numbers of million and billionaires escalate to an extraordinary amount um, who are taxed increasingly less for those things that would cover civic life and engagement. Um, all with the idea that they're going to be bigger philanthropists. For the ones who have become philanthropists, they tend to become uh, what's, what's referred to as venture uh, philanthropy. You know, they want to tell us how to do our work or they want to experiment with the stuff that we do, um, forcing us outside sometimes of our core missions. And that's, um, the, that's the reality in all of this is, is just when do, we, when do we use this opportunity to re-educate all levels that impact our lives? And the irony and, is, isn't it, that, that this healthcare in the situation that we're in right now, we've got health priorities, we've got economic priorities, but then the third thing in, in a lot of people's lives is the culture of, of the human experience and how they get through this and um, how they educate their children when they're at home and how they entertain themselves when they're, when they're stuck in the houses and, and it just sort of places their, the importance that it's, it's kind of number three, isn't it, on that list? It, absolutely, absolutely. And, and that's the thing right there. So that's, that's my bright spot. I'm like, okay, so even in the midst of all of this chaos and uncertainty, where are people turning? They're turning to the creative sector. They're turning to the cultural sector. And we just have to remind people of that and remind our, our political leaders of that, um, that we are just as viable and important to civic life and quality of life um, as trying to bail out a bank or, a, or an airline. Right. I mean, it's 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 insanity that, you know, and thank goodness for our um, associations that went to bat as these stim- first round of stimulus packages were done and said, wait a minute, don't forget about this. We're at the we're an anchor of these cultural and and tourism industry. Um, and, you know, but I I I hate that to justify our existence, we always have to pull a number. You know, this is our economic impact. What about the quality of life impact? You can't put a number on that. So yeah, when, if, when everything falls over, you, you still need right. to, to have culture and history mm-hmm. and art mm-hmm. and science. Mm-hmm. So for leaders that, that are in this hard place, that are they're having to deal with these reductions, they're out of options, what, what mm-hmm. are their alternatives here? Are, are we talking sabbatical, redundancy, furlough, leave? 
four-day work I think, weeks? I think it's different for each organization. Um, I know organizations that have, for example, said, okay, to conserve cash, what we're going to do is we're going to go ahead and take advantage of these um, federal and state stimulus with unemployment and lay our people off now so that we can recall them at when things are more secure and, and they can have a, um, a steady check. Um, I know that some people are looking at rolling systems of layoffs and reduction of force, um, reducing hours. I mean, they're looking at all of those things um, and it will vary. The answers will vary. There are some who are looking at these uh, potential federal loans. Um, there are some that are looking at borrowing from their own endowments and setting up zero interest or low interest payback options to, so that they're not depleting their own endowments while they're trying to use them for something else. If they're, again, if, the, um, if the, they're structured in such a way, if those endowments are structured in such a way that it would even allow that. Um, I'm you know, also having conversations with some of the foundation community and saying, you know what? the special projects and what have you that you've been pushing all this time, if you really want to help these organizations, they need general operating support right now. Um, and I've seen that there are numbers, not just, you know, certainly not me, but I know that that message is being pushed out by mm -hmm. a number of agencies around the, around the, the country and probably around the world. So it's a multi-front approach. But again, what ends up happening in each place is going to vary within that particular community and the resources that are available to it and the resources that are available to those particular museums. So if, if our listeners out there are facing one of these hard decisions, that awful place of choosing between survival of the mission and support of the individual, I mean, how do you balance ethics there? What do you do when you want to do right by people, but you've got very few options? Right. I mean, at the core, you know, I've said many, many times uh, in the midst of something like this, You've got to be transparent, um, which means sharing the information and letting people see it for themselves in terms of what's going on. Um, you, you have to be compassionate um, through all of this and you've got to be creative. You've got to look at it from a variety of ways and, and hope that you can come up with solutions that continue to provide the dignity to the people that make the experiences at museums happen to begin with. I mean, we are, you know, this is, this is an industry that is heavily driven by individuals who create these experiences. We're, you know, we're an experience economy, right? And so you can't, I don't think you can fully serve your mission if you are not being mindful of the fact that you need people to carry it out. Um, we can't go all digital. We can't, you know, just have our gallery sitting there and let people wander through them on their own. We have to help provide meaning and so, and, you know, um, and so there is that, um, how to put it, um, there is that balance of all of those things. But what, again, whatever approach, it has to be, you have to be transparent, you have to be clear, you have to be compassionate, and you have to be creative in thinking about how you're going to do all of this. And there is no cookie cutter response. I wish I could give you one. Hmm. But at, at a minimum, if you approach these decisions with those three elements in mind, 
It makes it easier because people, even as they are upset or in a state of shock, they will respect the fact that you were straight with them. To, to feel blindsided, oh, everything is fine, we're working through the issues, yada, 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 we think we have this covered, and then to come back to them two weeks later and say, oh, and by the way, the more this goes on, it's not looking good, so we're going to reduce our workforce by a third. That's pretty bad. Um, but if you're saying, look, we don't know what's going to happen right now, we can support this. But if this continues, this is what's likely to happen. So at least they've heard it. They're not, you know, again, going to feel blindsided by it. Um, you and you provide them uh, as much support during that transition as possible to just cut people off and say you're done. I think is also lacks a certain level of compassion. If you can work with and help them, that's good. I think this is also a time for museums to look at the types of programming that they're doing and look for those beneficial partnerships. You know, that's another piece of this, right? I mean, I can tell you here in Virginia, at least 40 different organizations, for example, do teacher institutes. You know, every summer they're bringing in 20, 30, 50, 100, however many teachers they have to teach them and provide resources for them um, to, to improve the experience in the classroom. Well, that's a great activity, but do we need 40 of them? Can we somehow pool resources to create an academy within the state that is drawing on the talents and resources of each of these organizations? Can you partner with um, universities to provide housing while those folks are there um, and have them on campus somewhere? I mean, can, you know, these are just the, the kinds of sort of creative things that I've been thinking about is like, do we really need to spend all of this money to service 40 people? What if we partner with um, Colonial Williamsburg or what if we partner with, uh, you know, Mount Vernon or Monticello and, and, you know, get people moving around the state. What happens if we do that? Where are the efficiencies that we could potentially derive at? Um, and, and the answer to those, you know, I got to dig more, but those are the kind of things that I'm thinking about right now. Um, and I'm encouraging my team to dig deep. Uh, as well, because ideas don't just come from the top of the organization. The folks who are working on the front lines every day and interacting with visitors every day, they can tell you how you could do something different and do it better. I'm, mm. I can tell you they've got ideas, ideas. And, and I was the same way when I was a frontline staffer for, you know, 10 years, I worked the front lines of museums and I would see things and go, God, that's a waste. What if we did it this way? And so I know that that exists um among the frontline personnel but we often don't ask them those questions in the midst of this we don't involve them in the process and i think we should and i think that that's part of this transparency issue there's quite a few other things right that we could do to support staff and in, in the wider family of the mm -hmm. cultural institution in the face of covid19 and um, particularly as this thing goes on and it gets to the point of you know managing sickness and 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 potentially bereavement and things. There's, is there things that we should be thinking about along those lines? I think, um, you know, what one of the things that I, that's really been lovely to see is that um, museum colleagues of, of every level seem to be interacting with each other. I mean, there are chat rooms and Zooms and all kinds of things that are happening. Um, and as I was talking to or chatting with a, a young lady, not within my organization, but she's like, look, I'm, 
I'm, you know, I, I just got laid off. I'm not sure what to do. And I said, stay engaged with your field, stay engaged with your peers. Um, this will pass. It will be a different day out there for sure. But if you remain engaged and networked with those people, you know, the opportunity for you to come back in when things settle out may be greater. It's not a promise, but it's certainly something to, to consider um, as a way to continue to engage with what you love, even as you are hurting, even, even as you are trying to figure this out. I mean, I will tell you, you know, it's, it's, a, it's heartbreaking. I mean, I, I can't, it is absolutely heartbreaking. That's, that's all I, I will say. It is heartbreaking. Um, just knowing that there are these extremely talented people who are losing their jobs. And then I saw uh, some grad students like I'm majoring in museum studies and I'm scared to death that there won't be anything for me. Well, mm. you know, sad to tell you, but that's mm. the situation for a lot of people coming out of college that they have no idea where they're going to land. Uh, whether the industry or the thing that they're interested in is even going to be there when they're done. It was the same situation, wasn't it, in 08? Mm -hmm. The graduates mm -hmm. of that time, I, I felt so, uh, your heart breaks for them coming out of college after all those years and there's nothing waiting for them at the other end. But I know you've personally drawn on times like 9-11 and, and the yes. GFC and, and thinking about how to lead right now. What were your biggest takeaways from those events? Um, well, after 9-11, after probably the closest thing that I will say about 9-11 was the fear factor. Um, people were scared to death. You know, were basically looking over their shoulders, looking at planes and wondering which direction they were going. Um, you know, there was just this pall on, on everything. Is there, you know, a bomb there? You know, the way we travel changed forever. Um, and so... What I learned, that's where I learned, you gotta, you gotta give people space to breathe and to go through their emotional transitions and to be there to help them when they need it. Um, so that's like one of the key lessons there, but from an institutional standpoint, you also had to try to figure out how that financial impact was going to, um, was going to impact the organization. So I will admit when 9-11 happened, that was my first CEO role. So I hadn't been through anything quite like that. And I really had to draw on the expertise and the advice that was coming to me from peers who had, um, who were trying to figure this out because we had you know, massive market decline during that time of an uncertainty there was. Um, there was just all kinds of things going on, but there was a rallying point of support. Um, but what we did see during 9-11 was that we had to work that much harder for the philanthropic dollar because there was a shift in philanthropy towards social service. Um, you know, tremendous amounts of money, billions were raised by organizations like the Red Cross and museums were left, museums and other arts related and cultural related institutions were kind of left in the dust. And then we got our pickup on the backside as we were developing programs that were engaging communities in the conversation of the meaning of that. So, you know, really reasserting the value helped um, bring that back around. 2011, I mean, with the Great Recession in 2008 and 2009 was 
probably more devastating, and that's when we really saw layoffs. We didn't see as many layoffs after um, 9-11 in the subsequent 18 months to 24 months. We certainly saw declines, but we didn't see sort of this mass layoff effect. Um, 2008-2009, oh my lord, it was, teams were having to cut at least 10 to 20 to 30 percent of their personnel, um, and we saw once, you know, we saw institutions shift to try to support and maintain um, frontline people and kind of clear out the back and said, okay, we're going to be visitor centric here. So we'll keep all of our, you know, sort of wage staff, temporary staff, but a lot of people lost full-time work because that's where the bulk of the expense and cost is and went to this model of more of a temporary, a permanent, but temporary workforce that you didn't have to pay benefits for. Um, and that, you know, and those folks took those jobs because they hoped that it would land them into um, full benefit salary positions. And, and in many cases, it, it did. This is both. And so I am, you know, drawing on those two experiences, I'm thinking, okay, so there's this long-term impact, and then I'm going to have a donor impact. And on, oh, and on top of that, because <laughs> the other thing about 9-11 is initially people um, were afraid to go out. They were afraid to be in places that they thought could be a target. Mm. There's certainly going to be a factor here, right? Correct. Correct. And so, so we did see sort of visitation decline. To actually have to shut your doors. Um, it's a whole nother game, isn't it? That's for a months. whole nother game. Yeah, for months. And not even knowing when you might be able to open them again, mm. right? And so that's, that's the part. And the question on the backside of that is, unlike fear of a terrorist attack, you still potentially may have a fear of, will I get sick if I go there? Who am I interacting with? So then the institution has to have protocols in place that are protecting their staff and the public from perceived viral threat. And that coming into our spaces that are more wide open or what have you is safe for you to do. Mm -hmm. So you have to be able to create a sense of safety because people are gonna be cooped up. And yes, when this is done, they're gonna to wanna to get out. So how do you project or how do you um, actually provide safe space for people to engage with your organization? So I think all of those are, they're just snippets. But again, it's just trying to glean, you know, bits and pieces from what the past has taught us around some of these things. Um, but again, we've never really encountered all three phenomena happening at the same time. Um, economic uncertainty certainly has its thing and people don't give as much or they tend to hold on to money a little bit more. That's different than markets tanking. I don't, people don't have a job. You know, it, it, they have no, you know, they're barely able to take care of their essentials and you want me to give you $5 for your museum. Mm. Got to get them past that first part so that they can get to the second part. Um, but again, I think at least in this nation, there are some really hard questions that we have to ask about the, mo the, the economic model that we've been um, living for at least the last 30 or 40 years. Um, it, it just doesn't, 
it just doesn't work. You know, um, you know, you talk about healthcare, these people who are losing jobs already probably don't have healthcare. What happens if they get sick? Mm -hmm. They're bankrupt, they're destroyed. Should not happen, should not be happening. Um, and that's, you know, all of that is a part of, of this phenomenon. So I, again, talking about governance here, you, you were discussing the, the role of boards the other day, and I know that's sort of a step down from economy wide, but mm -hmm. in terms right. of the, the role of boards and senior leadership, how has this changed what we, what we need and what we demand from governance and, and the role of governance and the way that we need to approach that? Well, you know, I've always been a huge advocate of helping your board leadership understand that they are not management. <laughs> what they are are your advocates. What mm. they are are the people who are making sure that what you are doing is best practices and following strategic direction. Um, and as advocates, and many of the people who sit on our boards are, have a tremendous amount of power, influence, and or wealth. And we have often not leveraged them to go about policy change. And so that is something that I think becomes an opportunity moving forward. Um, we should leverage those volunteers. We should leverage those board members um, to this new, to help us in this, this paradigm shift if we want these organizations to be sustainable in the long term and, and last into the future. And yeah, and in some cases, you know, there will be decisions because people have asked the question, you know, uh, should, board, should museums be merging right now? That's always an option. But I, I'm, I also think that any, any discussion of merging museums needs to be had not at a point of crisis, but at a, a point of opportunity. Mm. And you tweeted about museum entrepreneurship the other day. What could that look like in future? Um, I, again, still trying to work that out. I've seen um, a couple of organizations like there was, there was, and it didn't come to pass. And I thought it was such a brilliant idea, but uh, I don't know if it would have hurt them or helped them. But there's a museum uh, in Cincinnati that, um, the, that is sitting on um, a huge plot of land and the the former uh, executive director who ended up retiring before he could get it done talked about building a community around the museum getting investors in and that the museum would sim simply lease the land and allow for a livable community there with with shops and you know artists galleries and boutiques and all on the land with affordable housing and all of that on the land adjacent to, and that the museum would be sort of the central piece. And the museum would draw a small percentage of the land lease for these, these places. Um, and it was, it was probably one of the most creative things I'd ever seen. And he just wasn't able to get it done. He politically couldn't get it done with his legislature, um, even in creating a separate 501, I mean, a sep creating a separate uh, entity to, to manage that on behalf of the organization. But again, it's going right back to an entrepreneurial model and a revenue-based model. And I can't help but think, okay, so what, what, would, what would have happened to the museum if they had had this happen 
or they created all of this and all now all of a sudden all these shops have to close because they can't pay people because they're in social distancing. What happens? Well, if they did it where again, they, they truly did center themselves as part of the community, they probably end up okay, even if the monies in the immediate term were reduced because they will have had built up the appropriate reserves and costs and they would have made themselves invaluable to the life of that community, right? If they were able to do that. So that's one. Um, there's a museum out in, in uh, I think, San Francisco that um, has created uh, um, tech incubators. So they provide free space in their museum um, to allow young entrepreneurs and inventors and what have you to come and experiment and create their product and the work. And then in exchange, they get an equity stake in the companies. It's so very they cool have model, this passive. Yeah, I mean, so they get the sort of equity stake in these, in these young startup businesses. And it's kind of cool, right? And so, so there, there are things out there. Um, there's a lot of experimentation that had been taking place, um, but it's few and far between. And so um, it's, just, it's just because there's, there are folks who say, well, that's not, that's not a part of our mission. Well, you know, um, it may and or may not be. It depends on what you're doing. I, I was joking with a friend of mine. I was like, man, if I actually knew how to code for video games, you know, I'd create like a, a, a clash of clans <laughs> type video game for the phone <laughs> and just have a team of people creating, you know, thematically related gaming that's actually fun and interesting gaming versus the types of video games that some museums have produced on their websites, which are basically like little hide and seeks um, versus some real interactive play, you know, around the particular time periods that we're dealing with that were, you know, and, and create these kind of storylines. I'd love to do something like that. I so know our uh, National Museum there, which is Te Papa, they ran a program like this called Mahuki, where they invested in companies, gave them uh, a seed investment money to go and mm -hmm. scale. And, mm -hmm. and I remember asking them about it at the time around sort of what that strategic alignment was for them. And they said that their mission is to move hearts and minds and mm -hmm. to do that through the past, present and the future. And mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. if they weren't helping create the future, and they weren't fulfilling mm. their mission. And that was their, their link to that, which I thought was really cool. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, there, there, you just got to wrap your brain around it. What does it look like? And you had a call to action yesterday for us to chin up and move the cultural <laughs> sector from the nice to have um, into the essentials of public life and help preserve it. What can we all do towards that right now? Well, like I said, I mean, I think it's redeploying volunteers and boards. I'll never forget, for example, when I was working in, in Detroit this was years ago, um, and I was working in Detroit, there we had a change in political kind of leadership and, and this sort of, um, this, again, this idea that, oh, well, cultural sector, the government shouldn't be paying for cultural things and, and you know, they're, you know, whatever. And so... And so they, they threatened to, to completely remove all, I mean, completely eliminate the Arts Council, completely eliminate the granting programs, strip the, the institutions that they were supporting 
that you know we're getting um, government support, just taking it all to zero. The the organizations got together and said, "This is nuts. We got to stop this." And and what they did is literally loaded up bus loads. Every institution across that across the state of Michigan was asked to send at least a bus load of volunteers, mm-hmm. and and to get and to go in here and talk to these legislators and then get their big boys on their boards to start making some calls and doing some things and it was (laughs) it, it was it was an extraordinary thing it was an extraordinary thing so did it was the whole thing restored no but um uh more than half of it was and we were able to go back and we knew we were in tough economic times. That wasn't the issue, but the issue was by us. If this is not gonna be universal, you cannot, you know, if you're asking for across the board cuts, that's one thing, but to completely eliminate this sector is unacceptable under any, we're willing to take our hit, but we're not gonna take the majority of the hit. And it worked. Um, so I just think that that kind of action, it should not take that kind of action on a crisis there should be some way for us to do this on a on a continuing and a basis. It's it's an old saying of constant pressure, consistently applied, tends to do more. It is great advice. Thank you so much, Christy, for Thank sharing you. those brave words of wisdom today. It is enormous comfort, I'm sure, to everyone out there in the same boat, and and not always a topic that we talk openly about. Indeed. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. So for our listeners, you can follow Christy on Twitter at History Gone Wrong, spelling wise with no E in there, if I got that right. That's right. No E after the gone. (laughs) For more coverage on the COVID-19 crisis, including podcasts, webinars, resources and community, go to dexhibit.com forward slash COVID-19. Thank you so much, Christy. Thank you.